Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody this beautiful Sunday morning. How are you all doing? Doing well? It's great to have you guys here. Uh, I would also like to extend a word of welcome to our guests that are here with us today. Uh, let me introduce myself. My name is Jeremiah Smith. I'm the pastor here at University Baptist Church. And uh, as Matt said earlier, we are so glad that you have chosen this to be a place of worship this Sunday morning. It's a big day in the life of our church. It's what we refer to as Promotion Sunday. Uh, as you saw through the children's message earlier, it's the time where our age-specific groups, our Sunday Connect groups, have a chance to kind of promote up to a new grade and a new class. Um, and with this time of year, there's just kind of a newness that's in the air. And you heard us mention some of those things earlier. We've got uh, a new sermon series starting today, which is great. We're excited about that. But we also have the beginnings of a new Welcome Center. Uh, if you hopefully saw some of that on your way in, it's not complete. We're still working on flooring and some additional furniture, but kind of exciting to see that space coming together. We've launched a new website, which I'm incredibly excited about. And if you've been with us for any amount of time at all, you would also notice that today we have a new logo. And so a lot of new things happening in the course of our church, and I'm really excited about it. And, and we kind of pick this point in the year because it coincides with just a change that many of us are going through, uh, which is the start of a new school year. Uh, you got new students here, college students, uh, high school, junior high, everything in between. And, and we all find ourselves, especially in that life stage, in these new seasons of life. You find yourself in a new classroom, new classmates, new studies, and there's, there's just this newness that, that is often brought with this time of year. Now, I remember going through school that there are certain things that you would kind of go through, these rituals that we'd have in place in the scholastic setting to help us kind of identify ourselves in a new situation. Right now, it's been a long time since I've been in school. In fact, I was doing the math in preparation for the sermon. I think it's been at least 10 years since I've been in a formal classroom setting, okay, to date myself for a little bit. But um, there's a good chance that the rituals to how you identify yourself in a classroom have changed. But back when I was a kid, this is how we used to do it. Uh, you would have the roll call. Remember that? Like, you just call out your name, and, and, and you know, the teacher would call it out, grab the roll sheets, and you were supposed to say here, or present, or the class clown would say president, and people would laugh, and all that sort of thing. And, and this is how you identified yourself, right? That was kind of the way in which you were introduced into these new situations. Well, when I think back on my scholastic career, there was one particular roll call experience that is forever ingrained in my brain. I, I was in junior high or high school. I can't remember specifically which one, but I was in those awkward teenage years. And I remember being in a Spanish class, and it was a, a class where there was a merging of grade levels. And, and I remember this because there were people in the class that were a year older than I was. And in particular, there were a couple of girls um, that, that were a year older that would have captured the attention of a young high school boy. Let's just put it that way, right? They were the popular girls. They were cute. And I, I, I saw that they were in my class. I was like, okay, I really want to try to impress these girls. The problem is, is that when you're like at that awkward teenage phase, you feel like everything you do to try to impress somebody, you feel like everything matters, okay? And, and it doesn't, but you really convince yourself that it does. So I was convinced that like the way I walked into the room would matter, the way that I dressed, the way I sat down at my desk, the way I responded to my teacher, all these things matter. They would make or break me. And so I would show up to this class, I try to like walk in the right way, you know, just try to be, you know, kind of casual, and I'd sit down at my desk and just try to, you know, be laid back, make sure my shirt was right, and so I'm, I'm feeling all this pressure to impress these girls when all of a sudden the roll call is happening, and I hear my name, right, Jeremiah Smith, and so I, I think, okay, this is my moment, right, this is the chance to really impress these girls, I need to have a real manly response, you know, like I can just hear my name and be like, here, you know, or present, you know, and just kind of stir the attention of the room, uh, uh, unfortunately what was heard by these girls and everyone else in the room that day was something more along the lines of, here, 
It was the voice crack heard round the world, man. I'm kidding you not. And I immediately as it left my voice, I just wanted to cower underneath my desk. But to make matters worse, my friend who was sitting next to me, Cody Upfold, he turns to me with this huge grin on his face, kind of halfway laughing, going, dude, your voice just cracked, and just like made fun of me in front of everybody. I was like, thanks, Cody, about to crack your skull, buddy. And so I was really embarrassed. As you can see, that's why it was forever ingrained in my mind. Now, the one thing about the roll call that I appreciated was that my name was unique. Uh, I never really was ever in a class with another Jeremiah. If it happened, it was very rare for sure. Um, hardly at all if there was another Jeremiah Smith. And I liked that distinctive nature of my name. And so recently, I was reminded of how frustrating it can be when you lose that distinctive quality when you're trying to identify yourself. Uh, because this past January, my identity was stolen. I, I start getting all these letters uh, from different banks all over the country uh, congratulating me in these new accounts that I'd opened. And here's your new debit card. Here's your new credit card. And I was just like, well, this isn't me. And, and so I called probably like 25 to 30 different banks explaining to them that, that it wasn't me. And so in that scenario, there's another ritual in which you have to identify yourself, right? You call a bank and they need you to verify your identity, right? They say, all right, tell us your name, tell us your date of birth, tell us your social security number. And then maybe there's like a security question, like your mother's maiden name. There, there are all these ways in which you validate your identity. And so as I was going through that process, what was really kind of concerning was that whoever had stolen my identity had all that information. Like all the banks already knew all this stuff, and so I'm verifying it, but they already had it on record. And I found myself like in this really awkward dynamic trying to say, no, it's really me. You know, that last person wasn't me. And it was this kind of interesting experience to, to wrestle with what really shapes our identity. Like, like how do you prove who you are? What defines you? Is it really just limited to a couple of numbers and a, a date of birth and a couple of security questions? People take this information all the time and present themselves as other people, and they think that they've, they've robbed people of their identity. But really what defines us is something so much deeper, something so much greater. And that's really what I want to talk to us about, not just today, but through the course of this series. Right? What is it that shapes our identity? If you look at a, a brief definition of it, what it would be defined as is the characteristics or the beliefs that distinguish a person or thing. Right, these things that make us distinct. And, and I really want to extract a part of that definition and fixate on the word beliefs. Right, that, that essentially, it's not just information, it's not just numbers that can be attached to your name, it's not just a card, it, it's, it's the things that you believe, it's the convictions that you hold. Right, a conviction is defined as a fixed and firm belief. Right, we, we learn these convictions, we learn these values early on in our childhood. And, and those beliefs shape how we see the world and how we see people around us, right? They, they give us a sense of our identity. And so parents often are trying to in, ingrain these convictions into their children. We're, we're doing that now as parents in our home. And so there will be these phrases that we come up with as a mom and a dad to try to teach our children values and convictions that they need to hold on to to shape their identity. So we're telling them all the time, be strong and courageous, right? Be a light, work hard, play hard, use your words, right? All these different things to help ingrain in them and instill in them these convictions that will ultimately shape who they are, right? That, that's how we formulate this identity is through these convictions. Now, ultimately, what we're going to see through this series and the main message that we need to hear throughout the course of these series is that the one thing that truly defines us and shapes our identity is our conviction and our belief in Jesus Christ, 
He's the only thing that truly defines us. Our convictions and our beliefs of how we see him and interact with him is going to be what really shapes our identity. And so that's really what this series is designed to do, to help us navigate through the convictions that should shape our identity in Christ. And so here's how I want us to introduce this subject today. I actually want to start with more of a church-wide view of it. When I first got here, one of the, the first series that I kind of took us through as a church was a series referred to as Our Key Convictions. Right, these beliefs and these ideals that we would hold tight to to shape the vision and the future of our church. And, and so this is really a reminder of what it is that, that brings an identity to University Baptist Church. Yes, we have a new logo. Yes, we have a new website, a new welcome center. None of those things define us. Right? Our identity is, is found in what we believe. The things that we hold tightly to are fixed and firm beliefs. And really, as we've tried to identify maybe a succinct phrase that we could offer to folks to say, this is really who we are, right? If you really want to get a sense of our identity, part of what we're really trying to strive for here as a church is that we are disciples who make disciples, right? That, that is the essence of, or maybe the framework of the identity that we're trying to cultivate here. That, that's what we're trying to pursue to a great extent, that, that our journey together is about what does it mean to follow Jesus Christ, how do I follow him at work? How do I follow him at school? How do I follow him within my family and my relationships? But then, what does it mean for me to bring others along? What does it mean to reach out into those that are lost and hurting and broken? How do I actually make disciples as well? And so the hope for this series is for us to look at this lens of identity through that framework of being disciples who make disciples. And as we go through it, I really hope we achieve two things. One is I hope we're able to remind ourselves of these convictions that are unique to, to UBC, um, for us to be reminded of some of the things that shape our identity as a church. But then in addition to that, for us to have a chance to be able to, to look at it from a more personal viewpoint. What does it mean for my life to be gospel-centered? What does it mean for my life to be biblically guided? That, that's the hope. And, and my, my intent is that as we get through this journey, you and I will be able to look back and see the beauty of being able to live into an identity of those who are disciples who make disciples. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Jonah chapter 4. Just kidding. I'm just kidding, right? Go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 4. I had to play around with you there for a little bit. We, we have finished Jonah, thankfully, and it's been a fun series. It was a time for us to get through an entire book, right, verse by verse, word by word, and have a chance to really dive into it over two and a half months. Uh, we're going to take a slight deviation from that approach for this next series. Um, we're not going to go through an entire book. We're not going to go in necessarily a, a, a clean sequence of ordering, but we are going to take a, a portion of scripture and really dive into it. Uh, we're going to focus in, the, in Matthew's gospel, and in particular in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, but we're not going to go in, in order per se. We're going to use it to, to drive home these convictions that are unique to our church, and, and we're really going to do so in a manner, though, that allows us to dive deep into the scripture in a very intentional way like we did with Jonah. And so we'll start today with Matthew chapter 4, but as you're Turning there, let me just offer a couple of comments about the Gospel of Matthew that I, I believe are going to be an important element of context as we dive into this text. Uh, the first thing I want us to, to talk about is the structure of Matthew's Gospel. Okay? Uh, Matthew is seen, as well as the other Gospels, as a historical narrative. And so what that means is, is that every Gospel truly is capturing a moment of history. It's capturing historical facts, but it's told in narrative form. Which means each gospel writer has a certain approach or a certain technique to highlight elements or, or points of emphasis that they really want to bring uh, to fruition, right? That they really want to disclose. And so like for Matthew, for example, he's not going to really worry too much about chronology. 
He's not trying to put things in, in an order exact, exactly as they happen. He structures his, his writing around those missionary commands that Jesus offers. In fact, there's even kind of this rhythm to, to Matthew's structure between narrative and discourse. There are five major discourses that you see in the Gospel of Matthew. So what that means is, is that Matthew's going to tell a little bit of the story. Here's what Jesus did. Here's where he went. Here's what, what he talked, or here's who he talked to. And then you're going to get a, a long and lengthy discourse of Jesus actually teaching or speaking. Right, there's five of those. And we're going to be in the first one, the Sermon on the Mount. Today, and, and technically tomorrow, we're really going to be in the narrative portion. Okay, we're going to be in chapter 4. The other thing that we need to look at with, with Matthew is understanding his utilization of the Old Testament. Uh, there are more than 60 direct quotations from the Old Testament in the Gospel of Matthew, which is more than double any other Gospel writer. And it doesn't even count the other allusions and references that we can find in this particular Gospel. Um, but in addition to that, what you see with that sort of emphasis is that Matthew is really trying to convey that Jesus is fulfilling God's plan and his purpose. The third element that I want us to talk through with Matthew's gospel is a theme. Now, to be fair, you really can't identify a theme in the gospel of Matthew, right? To, to suggest that there's only one primary message would be a disservice to the breadth and the depth that we find in this gospel. But if you were forced to pick one, if you were forced to identify one central theme it would most likely be the kingdom of heaven, right? That the kingdom of God is here. Now, what do we mean by that? Right? that? That's an exhaustive topic that we don't have a time to go into today. But essentially, what it is suggesting is that the rule and reign of God through Jesus Christ has begun. And that Jesus has invited other people. He is calling other people, summoning other people, forming for himself essentially what becomes the church, that they too can be awakened to this kingdom and bring others along with them. That they can participate in this rule and reign of God and bring others along with them. Right? That, that's the inauguration of the kingdom. All right? So with that being said, let's take a look at chapter 4. We're going to read verses 18 through 22. But before we do, just, just glance with me for a moment at the verses that come before it. If you look at verse 15, you see one of those Old Testament quotations. It comes from Isaiah Chapter 9, one of the greatest messianic prophecies that we have in the Old Testament. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And then verse 17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Right, so Jesus has been born, he has been baptized, we have the, the discussion of his temptation in the wilderness, and the first thing that he declares is the kingdom is here. And so what follows is a response to that declaration. And the first thing that Matthew brings to our attention is the response and the calling of Jesus' first disciples. And I believe these five verses are going to really help us understand what it means to shape our identity in Christ. Let's read together starting in verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said. And I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them. And immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Okay, it's a short passage. But to me, it is, is rich with meaning and significance. And, and here's how I want us to look at it. If you notice, these two paragraphs more or less mirror each other. Okay, not, not exactly, but, but fundamentally they mirror each other. So 
we, we don't need to work through it verse by verse. I want us to see the overall message that we have in these two paragraphs to understand how Jesus' call and his disciples can help us understand our own identity. And, and here's the, the, the way in which I want to approach it. I want to start by looking at the invitation that Jesus extends to these men and how that invitation applies to us. And then I want us to look at the response that they offer. So when you begin to look in this passage, you see that, that when, it, when Jesus is preparing his invitation, there's a purpose behind it. There's, in both paragraphs, a movement that is associated with Jesus. Right? In, in the opening verse, it actually references Galilee, which is also tying us back to that Old Testament prophecy we just read in Isaiah, right? that, that Jesus is moving in order to fulfill God's plan and his purpose for his kingdom. Right? There's an intentionality behind it. Jesus is being sent here to usher in what God wants to achieve for his kingdom. Right? So there's a movement that is associated with Jesus in both of these paragraphs. And then he sees sets of brothers. Right? And he sees exactly who they are, what they're doing in that moment. It defines them as fishermen. And so part of what we're seeing is that in this opening, uh, I guess, introduction to Jesus' invitation to these men is that Jesus moves with purpose and he meets us exactly where we are, right? We see that these men are fishermen. Now, we don't know why they're fishermen, right? We don't know if this is because this was their childhood dream. They just had so many memories of going to the lake, fishing with dad. We don't know if there were expectations upon them that this was what they were gonna have to do because it was the family business. We don't know if it was the only choice they had in order for them to find an income, to sustain their livelihood. We don't really know. But this is who they were. They were fishermen. And Jesus sees them. Part of the unique nature of this invitation is that Jesus is the one seeking out the disciples. In rabbinic history at this point in time, it should have been reversed. right? Followers coming to a rabbi and saying, can I follow you? Jesus does it opposite. As he seeks to fulfill his kingdom, he sees people exactly where they are. And that's a reality for you and I to to embrace this morning is that Jesus meets you in your current reality. So many times we try to to feel as if we can can delay our response to Jesus because maybe our lives aren't quite what we think they should be. And so we try to hide who we are. We try to disguise what's going on in our life as if we can hide these things from God and from Christ. And so we think, well, I just need to, to get my life in order. I need to pretty myself up first. God couldn't take me as I am. Jesus meets you exactly where you are. That your current reality, the way that you currently define yourself, your current identity, Jesus sees it in its fullness, and that's where he meets you. And he sees you, and he extends an invitation. Now, what we see is is a slight variation in both of these paragraphs. In the first one, we have the actual uh, terminology that Jesus uses. He says, come, follow me. In the second paragraph, it's just a reference to he called them. And so you have this word called, and you have this word come, and both of them really kind of convey the same message, that Jesus is calling them out of their current reality. He's summoning them to a specific task, right? He's, he's pulling them out of their current dynamics, their current situation, their current identity, and he's giving them something new. That's one of the things that I love about the invitation that we have through Christ. It's like what we see in 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Right? In Christ Jesus, we are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. He meets us in our current reality and then he calls us out of it. Right? He, he wants to bring us into something new. This is the, the power of this invitation. He has called us. 
Now, what's unique about that is that that really begins to shape our identity. You know, the, the way in which we get the word church, the Greek word for church is ekklesia, and the root word there is kaleo, which means called, and so ekklesia means the called out ones. We are those who Jesus has met in our current reality and says, no, come forward, I've got something new for you. And, and he absolutely changes who we are. He says, I'm going to send you out and make you fish for people. I love that, right? You think you're a fisherman. You think this is what defines you, but I've got something greater for you. I've got a, a better purpose, a new purpose, a new identity. This is the beauty of this invitation. And so one of the things that I want us to embrace as we begin to wrestle with what is our identity in Christ, we need to first see that Jesus and God is essentially a God of invitation, right? He comes and he seeks us, he finds us, and he invites us into a new reality. And so the greatest determination in figuring out our response to him or our identity in him is to determine how have we responded to such an invitation. What does our response look like? And that, to me, is where this passage gets so much of its strength and its power, when we begin to look at the response of these disciples. Right now, there's the first thing that we see in both paragraphs is an immediacy to their response. Right In the first paragraph, we see that at once they left their nets and they followed him. In the second, it's immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. But there's an immediate response which shows us that Matthew is trying to highlight that distinctive quality of those that are going to follow Jesus. That when he speaks, when he calls, our response should be immediate. Now, I'll be the first to confess, that goes against my nature. Okay, I, I don't tend to be an immediate decision maker. Okay? I like to be somewhat methodical. You invite me to do something, my typical answer is, I don't know. Let me see. Let me check my calendar. Let me talk to my wife. You know, like there are all these things that I need to figure out before I can do it. So I'm not typically one who responds immediately, but that's exactly what, what Jesus wants from us when he extends this invitation. It's an immediacy. So what is it that helps us respond more immediately to certain invitations? Right? Typically, what I would argue is that what leads towards immediacy is understanding the worth of something and, and whether or not it's trustworthy. Right? Is, is it worth my response and can I trust this invitation? Those two things will determine the urgency that we we utilize in these sorts of invitations, right? The minute that any of those things are off, that we don't feel as if it's trustworthy or we don't feel like that it's worth it, well, then it's going to influence our urgency. Let me give you an example. Uh, this past week or two, I think, maybe it was last week, I can't remember exactly, the staff in particular, maybe, maybe the rest of you got it too, uh, started getting an email from me, supposedly. Once again, it was kind of a, an issue of uh, stolen identity. And so the first one that I think received it was April Lentz, and she sent me a text message of a screenshot of the email, and she said, hey, is this you? And she sent me a picture of this email, and here's what it says. It says, I require some help from you. Please email me back at the earliest opportunity. Hope to hear from you soon. That's a little odd kind of email. It's not typically how I would draft an email to somebody, and, but it's got my name spelled correctly, okay? And that's part of my distinct characteristics. I spell my name differently. And so she was trying to figure out, is this really you? And I, I told her, well, no, it's not. I don't know how that happened. But she and a few others decided to have fun with it, and decided to go ahead and reply. And it was like, all right, yeah, what do you need? And that led to the second response, which was this one. I should have called you, yet I can't do this now because I'm in pressing meeting. I need to get an iTunes card of $500, denomination of $50 or $100 for a friend at the hospital. 
Would you be able to get it from any store around you? I'll pay you back when I get it back. Let me know ASAP if you can get the cards for me. Now, I'm not great at grammar, but I'm better than that, okay? <laughs> and the other thing that starts to tip off like the warning signs is, why do people in hospital need iTunes gift cards? Can't really figure that one out. And the boldness to actually ask for an amount and then request it in smaller denominations. That, to me, was pretty hilarious, okay? And so now, all of a sudden, people realize that this is not trustworthy, right? This is not worth it. I'm not going to spend $500 on something that I don't trust. And so as a result, there was no immediate response, right? That the urgency completely diminished. And so part of what begins to become a, a preventative nature for us to respond immediately to Christ is when we fail to see that he is worth it and that he is trustworthy. Those things begin to influence our urgency. So, so let's think of it this way. If you're slow to respond to what Jesus is has asked you to do or his call on your life, then perhaps it's because something within you hasn't quite seen just how worth it he really is, right? Then maybe you're still clinging a little bit too tightly to to other things, other comforts, an idea of image or status or success, something that you still see as being more valuable than responding to his call. You don't see the worth that is assigned to him. Or, Or maybe it is a lack of trust. Right? You know all the Sunday school answers. Right? You, know, you know what to say when people ask, but do you truly trust him? Right? Are there still just too many questions, too many concerns that have allowed this doubt to kind of creep in? And so as a result, there isn't a real sense of urgency in your life when responding to Christ. Right? That, that all those things have led to a, a certain place where you say, I'll just get to that later. Right? I'll, I'll wrestle with that issue or I'll pursue those things Later, when I've got all these things solved, if there's any sort of hesitation in our lives, it's typically because we have lost the sense of the worth and the trustworthiness of Jesus Christ. And so let me remind each of us this morning, he is absolutely worth it, and he is absolutely trustworthy. And our response should always be, yes, Lord, immediately. That's the first lesson that we see in a response to this invitation from Christ. The second is that they're willing to abandon their current reality, right? It's a simple word. It says they left. That word means they, they left behind. They actually abandoned these things. And Matthew is intentional. He gives us a list of the things that they are willing to abandon, right? They leave their nets, their boat, and their father. Now, there's some significance in these things that are left behind. Consider for a moment what, what it might imply for us because essentially what it's saying is that they're going to leave their current reality into this new call from Jesus. And so, so think about it. To, to leave your net and your boat on one level is to say that they're willing to understand that their jobs don't define them. Their vocation, as important as it is, does not define their identity, which is a great reminder for you and me. Because so much of our life and our time and our energy is devoted to shaping a career, shaping some sort of form of work or vocation, and we begin to wrap ourselves up in that sense of identity that we're defined by our success, defined by our titles, defined by everything that happens at work. And what Jesus is saying is, no, you need to be willing to leave all of that for me. And so a question that a passage like this forces us to wrestle with is, what do you cling more tightly to? What are you allowing to really shape your identity? When you think about your career, your dreams, your ambitions, would you be willing to walk away from all of it immediately if Jesus called you to do so? What are you clinging more tightly to? 
a reminder for us is that your job does not define you. Jesus does. It's not just their vocation, but to leave their nets and their boats is to leave their possessions. Right? These were not just markers of what they did for a living. These were valuable to them. This was a sense of their livelihood. Part of the reason it's hard for us to leave our jobs is because of the financial security that they bring. And, and that's the, the lie of the culture, right, is that we need to define ourselves by all these things that we acquire. The house that you buy, right, the neighborhood that it's in, the square footage that it brings, the things that you can fill within that house, all those things help define your identity, right? The car that you drive, the clothes that you wear, all these things seem to suggest that this is how you define yourself and how others can identify you. A message that you can send with the things that you possess, the money that's in your account. And so what culture is going to try to convince us is that we need to, to save these things. We need to utilize these things because they are ultimately our security. They are our safety. They are our comfort. And what we need to do is once again see the invitation of Jesus and allow it to break us free from those deceptions and understand that, that money and possessions never define us. He is our safety. He is our security. He is our comfort. So again, when you think about all that you own, every possession, everything that you would declare as some level of worth and value to, would you be willing to leave it all immediately for the sake of Christ? What do you hold more tightly to, your possessions or to Jesus? Now, the third thing they're willing to leave is their father. This one's tricky. Now, let me, let me offer a disclaimer again that in our church and what I believe the scriptures teach is that families are valued, right? Family is God's design and he wants families to flourish but we have to embrace a very hard truth today your family does not define you and so when we begin to discuss family there there are a couple of pitfalls that we can find ourselves in there are a couple of ditches on both sides of the road that I want to speak to for a moment one of the things that that leads us astray when we talk about family is when we idolize our families right that our whole life revolves around our family, as opposed to our family revolving around Christ. That's, that's the problem, right? As important as family is, right? Your life should not revolve around your family. You should not compromise what you see to be doctrinal truths. You should not compromise what you know to be God's call on your life for the sake of a sibling or a relative or a family member, right? Family is not ultimate. Jesus is. And too many times we live as if family comes first and faith comes second. We've got to reorient that. But it has to be held in tension with the ditch on the other side of the road, which I've seen far too many times, which is the neglect of family. Right? That now all of a sudden we over-spiritualize the call in our life and we over-spiritualize ministry and we begin to neglect our family, justifying it because, oh, we're doing the Lord's work. Right, or these other things are more important. This is what God's called me to do, so I'm going to do it with reckless abandon no matter what happens to my family. And we neglect them. And we miss the fact that, that, listen, the scriptures are clear. It's going to tell you very clearly who you should be as a father, as a wife, as a husband, as a mother, as a sibling, as a brother, a sister, as a, as a child. Those, those conversations in the scriptures about family are evident. Right? We should start at home. You want to know what it means to make a disciple? Start with your children. You want to know what it means to reach out to, to broken and hurting, hurting people? Start at home. Start with that sibling. Start with that parent. Start with the wayward relative, whoever it is. But, but we should not neglect our family. We should invest in them. 
So we have to hold those things in tension. Here's the good news of a message like this one. The good news is that I know for many of you that are in this room today, you come from a broken home. And your family was a place where you experienced far too many wounds and far too many scars. It's a place where you first encountered abuse, a place where you first encountered neglect, hardship, harsh words. And those wounds and those scars have stuck with you and you have convinced yourself they define who you are. Here's the good news. Your family does not define you. Jesus does. And he can set you free from all of those wounds and all of those hurts by bringing your identity in him more than in the family in which you were raised. Family does not define you. Jesus does. And so we see this amazing willingness, this immediate response for people to abandon their current reality, abandoning their jobs, their possessions, their family, which ultimately leads to to how I want to conclude this message, right? That, That it's not just that they're willing to forego and leave something behind, but what they ultimately do is they follow after him. That word follow means to have this exclusive and total commitment to Jesus, right? That, that it's not enough just to identify with him. It's not enough just to say, well, I believe he existed, but you give your whole heart, soul, and mind to following Jesus wherever he may lead you. It's that complete and total devotion to Jesus that he longs for. That's where we begin to find our identity. And that's when we begin to see what does it mean to be a disciple, one who follows. And what we discover is that as soon as we do that, What Jesus asks us to do is that if you follow me, I'm going to send you out. (laughs) I'm going to send you out to the broken, to the hurting, and to the lost so that they too can be awakened to the hope that I have in them. That's the call. It, It begins with his first invitation with his disciples and it ends with the great commission, be disciples who make disciples. And so what that means for you and me is that one of the greatest characteristics of our identity is our understanding that God has called us to go and seek and save the lost and make disciples. If that is where we truly begin to understand our identity, then guess what? That means the devil is going to do everything he can to keep us against it, to prevent us from living that call out. And so he does it with masterful ways. One way is to change our understanding of discipleship, right? And we begin to to change the definition to where it's just a post-conversion study experience, And we divorce it from these other things that make us more uncomfortable. Listen, discipleship is not just post-conversion. It's all of it. It is evangelism. It's outreach. It's sharing your faith. It's equipping others. It's investing in them day after day after day. And so when you begin to hear those things and you think of all the obstacles that come in your way, that is the devil preventing you from living out what you were designed to do. I don't feel comfortable sharing my faith. I, I don't know if that's really effective. I don't know if I really have the time. All those things are designed to prevent you from living this call out. Because maybe, just maybe, when we truly devote ourselves to that sort of task and we begin to actually see what it means to make disciples, that maybe in that moment we truly begin to discover who we were designed to be and the essence of our identity. That is the invitation that's been extended to all of us. And that's the sort of response that it demands, that we would be able to respond immediately, willing to abandon our current reality and follow him to seek and save the lost, to participate in his kingdom and awaken others to it as well. And so that's the invitation for you and I today. Right? God of creation is speaking. 
He's calling you. He is summoning you by name. He's meeting you in your current reality, in your current situation. And he's leading you to a greater understanding of what it is that he's asking you to do. And he's led by example. He was willing to forego all of the comforts of heaven. Willing to forsake it all so that he could dwell among us and reveal his grace and his mercy on the cross for you and for me. And if he was willing to do that for us, then we should be willing to do it for him. Now, if we do that, you and I will be awakened to the beauty of this amazing invitation and discover the identity that he has established for us, that we would be disciples who make disciples. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this wonderful day. We thank you for this wonderful call. We confess that too many times, Father, things get in our way, things distract us from what it is that you've designed us to do. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to identify those things today and to repent and turn from them so that we can run hard after your kingdom. Father, I pray that for those that are in a, in a season of life that need to just be reminded of what it is that you've done for them, Father, that you would assure them that you meet them where they are. You know them by name and you call them forward. Father, that we would be able to hear your voice and declare with passion and with vigor, with tenacity and with commitment, that no matter what you do for us, Father, that as you have led by example through Jesus Christ, we will follow in a similar pattern. Help us to understand who it is that you've created us to be, that we would follow after you with all heart, with all soul, and all of our mind, to the, great, to the praise and the glory of Jesus our Lord and our Savior. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen and amen.